This is Werewolf the Podcast, a podcast about the role-playing game, Werewolf the Apocalypse. D20 Radio, your gamer's role. Have you heard of high-level games? If you're a content creator looking to make your dream a reality, you need high-level games. High-level games does layout, editing, and development support such as Kickstarter and more. Even if you're not a creator and just want to enhance your game with exciting new supplements, go to highlevelgames.ca and check out Dark New England for V20. High-level games. We want to help you level up your role-playing game. Highlevelgames.ca Welcome back to another episode of Werewolf the Podcast. I am the main host, Josh Heath. I am joined by Jim and Dove. We're going to be talking about Book of the Wild. I'm going to let them introduce themselves or at least say hi in just a second. But like the wild, I'm going to babble like a brook for a couple of seconds just to say this is an interesting book. It's going to be very odd to review it. In some ways, it will have probably a higher review than I may think it should. But this came out in 2001. It was a book that I read once back when it first came out and then didn't read it again, bought a copy in 2012 as a PDF, didn't read it then, and only read it again recently for reviewing it for the podcast. It is very interesting not having a sense of what this book might be about ahead of time, really, because there's been such a long period of time between now and then. That said, Dove, Jim, how are both of you? Dove, uh, would you uh, like to say hello to our listeners? Hey, everybody. It's Dove, uh, Sunseed Sword. And uh, I really appreciate this book, especially in light of how much popularity book of the worm gets and how much shine that book gets even the weaver gets a lot of like oomph by Glasswalker. even the book of the weaver book that came out wild it just needed some love it got it there's some things in this book that i think could have been done a little differently and there's a lot of this book that i think really oomphs how cool the wild can be no matter how you use it in your story and i think this is this is a gold mine to have as a storyteller. Hey guys, love it. Come love that. Love that synopsis dove. Cause it's actually very clean in, in keeping with what I thought about this. I always think that the wild as enemy is underestimated because the guru always portray themselves as protectors of the wild. And they're like, no primal chaos has no ally. Primal chaos has no protectors. Primal chaos doesn't need your protection. It just needs to be free. And that's what, if you rend the weaver's webs just a little bit, you may get more, far more than you bargained for. But we'll get into that in a bit. We will. And that is a good general overview of the book and how it will uh, go out, go along as we are talking about it. We're going to start a little bit at the beginning. We're going to start in the credits and then we're going to backtrack to the cover and the intro story. This book was written by Rich Dansky, Lisa Clark Fleischman, Shannon Hennessy, and Rick Jones, uh, developed by Ethan Skemp. Jim, you recognize at least one of those names because Shannon Hennessy is a friend of the show, a friend of ours that we have uh, collaborated on some things that have yet to exist, but he 
is a longtime white wolf werewolf writer uh, and we've mm-hmm. gotten to do some stuff with him more recently hopefully that will eventually see the light of day but it will if i <laughs> if i have to drag it kicking screaming you know, through by myself it will um yes i can definitely see shannon's handiwork in this Absolutely. i can recognize his distinctive style and he was a very good choice for this piece. Absolutely. So Book of the Wild's cover is actually one of the ones that I really, really like. It's very impressionistic. Um, Garu in the Umbra, probably in Flux or somewhere like that, where there are, are just a mix of spirits around it. The title itself is a little hard to see against the background, but I actually think it works really well. I like this cover um it's good i I think revised hits the mark more often than not on the covers yeah this is a really good really good choice of art piece Mm -hmm. really really evocative it's like yes this is what i think of when i think of flux and flux is one of those places where it's fun to see players go and play with what did you think about this dove i am reminded of i can't quite recall the name of it but it's those uh, intelligent AI visuals that they do where it's like you give it a, oh, I want you to do a, a picture of a dog and then it's a dog, but it's almost like every part of the dog is a fractal of the dog of the dog yeah. of the dog. And it's, well, it's it's wild. And um, I love this design. I think this is very cool. I also think that this is one of those areas where by design, it's meant to be almost impossible to navigate by three-dimensional understandings of space, distance, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think that leads into what it really means to be a guru or any changing breeds. You've got to break that, that 3D mold and go into that extra dimension of conceptional motion and movement. So that's my part on that. Yeah. So this book opens up like so many white wolf books i say this nearly every episode these days with fiction um it is a uh, legends of the garu is how they are you know calling all of these um it is about a pregnant garu and her coming to terms with the fact that she is very young um she is not an adult um, she is uh, a late teenager, so that's problematic, but um, she is pregnant. She is having a child. She doesn't seem excited about it because it is taking her away from the fight against the worm. I want to hear your opinions about this story because I'm not sure about it. This is too much wild as your friend, which I really think, one, Two, it's got the problematic elements of the Black Fury woman discarding her lover as an inconsequential by-blow, which is bad. It was a bad look, no matter what. It's, it's a child's father. Come on. And then there's also the just the whole thing feels. This is the weakest part of the book. It just straight up is. It's like okay, this does not do much to elucidate the wild as a force of chaos, which is chaos and creation, which is a little bit creation, but not enough of the real nature of the wild, if you can call it, if you can really pin that down, which is the thing that the book tries multiple times to 
do and not do at the same time, which I really appreciate. I, uh, I agree with that. Um, this, and there's one other, one of these sort of story perspectives that I feel are the weaker side of this. It, well, I, I guess it does fall into the realm of the Black Furies being problematic, especially in hindsight, um, with this over mystification of the, I guess, the ideal of the woman, and then conflating that with wild creative energy as a cat. It, it's sort of missing the points of, I think, the possibilities of the wild and, and, and conflating it with a oh, womb makes babies. It's create like, eh. um, I think I had said this to Josh before we started the recording. When I think of the wild and like birthing, I have a scene from a movie called species two in my head of, I think it was an astronaut's wife, I guess either he or she had become infected with some sort of a Martian viral disease monster, whatever. I don't remember the plot. They have sex in their bedroom. She immediately, her belly inflates, and then a monster arm explodes out of her stomach and kills her husband. I think that should have been the plot. I think that's what they should have gone with. They didn't. Instead, it's almost, well, if I had the magic wand, I would have made this into a, Garu are traditionally anti-abortion because we need more warriors to fight the good fight and blah, blah, blah. I would have just railed real hard on that, gone real into the religiosity side of it, and and I wouldn't have tapped the wild so much as the excuse. Yeah, right. I, I, I struggle here to see how this story ties into the wild. Like, I really don't it ties into a Gaia centric womb centric sort of thing. And that is, um, that is an interesting element of feminism um, that we now have trans inclusive feminist thought that is a little less womb centric because it's a bit too genital centric. This is a really complicated topic. I will admit I'm a cis male. Um, not sure it's appropriate for the podcast, but I will say there's a lot here to unpack if you wanted to unpack that. Um, what I really actually don't like about the story is that the aha gotcha thing at the end doesn't <laughs> make any sense. Like her, this woman's transition or this young girl's transition from being not happy about having a child to being okay with it does not make sense it doesn't there's nothing there that actually yeah makes any sense yeah. for her transition to that thought so this story just i don't get it um if others do particularly if other women do and have some thoughts and are like hey this is what we think about this story let us know mm. maybe we've missed something but i don't think it's a great start to the book which is sad because lots of this book is fiction and is good fiction in a lot of ways. So we've spent a lot of time talking about this opening story to then say there's other not so great stuff in his, but after this, it really does go up in direction quite significantly. Um, we've got really good art throughout this book that is lots of line art that is really like complex where there's lots of different things going on with it, which again, tracks with a, um, a wild esque theme that we you've got going on. 
um, lots of it by Richard Kane Ferguson, particularly at this introduction mm -hmm. section. It in the introduction, they really give you the whole book. Like this whole book could have been five pages, probably. I'm not saying that to knock it. This book could have been five pages and generally said most of what you're getting in the 120 pages, 118 pages of this book. Except for when it gets really deep into a couple of chapters where it's presenting things that you're not getting anywhere else. My big critique that I'm not going to repeat, but my big critique of this book is it repeats itself. <laughs> and, yes. and then undermines itself quite regularly which is not the end of the world because the good stuff in this book, I think is good. So thoughts on just this introduction first, before we dive into the chapters. Have you ever gone walking through the woods alone near dusk during that time towards the end of the day, when everything seems to turn blue for a few moments, when you do take that walk, do you ever feel like you are not wanted? like a stranger in a familiar yet strange land. Are you an interloper? Do you hear the groan of the trees, the rustle of the underbrush? And when you sense the sudden stillness of the canopy above you and the sudden silence of the otherwise conversational cacodids, did you know somewhere inside of you where the alarms and adrenaline and instinct go off like klaxons that you are not at all welcome where you tread? That passage there, the very first paragraph in the opening, to me, sums up the book and does a really good job of it. Agreed. It does, but it also does this interesting thing where I, I said I wasn't going to harp on the critiques, but I, this, is a, this is one where it does a lot of work in the text to distinguish the wild is not Gaia. Wild is not nature. And yet, very frequently, the Geru, at least, absolutely do conflate the two, and that's a problem. And then the non-in-character text sometimes does also, and that's where I get this weird, like, the wild is an incomprehensible, chaotic, creative, transformative force in the universe, supposedly. My theory is the triad does not exist. There, this idea of a trinity of uh, forces is a oversimplification by the Geru that they have projected onto the Umbra and created this entire uh, umbral triadic force from their belief. But personally, there's too much overlap between the Wild Weaver and Worm for me to think they're actually distinct spiritual beings of any form that's a theory it it's undermined by much of the text itself um but that is what i take away a lot of times when i read these particular books my my take of that first uh description i like it but at the same time part of me is so caught up in the mysticism of garu that i almost feel it's sort of redundant because that's something that one probably should have gotten out of any player's guide or where of the apocalypse starting book. Um, that said, the fact that at the very end, it quips it and turns it around and Ooh, the Garu should be afraid of this too. That's leaning into, I think where this book shines 
and there'll be more of that coming very soon. Yeah. The unitary theory of the, of the triad is an interesting one, Josh, because in, as a, my characters pointed out this in and out of character, all three elements of the triad exist in absolutely everything. The question is which one predominates. So yeah. I think that that unitary theory there is very appropriate because the wild destroys, the wild creates, and the wild must put some form into it. It's maybe most inimical to the weaver, but it's not completely without using the weaver's tools from time to time. Yep. This, Dove, you said it absolutely correct. This book shines when it shows the wild as enemy, and it spends a, a significant portion of word count talking about how to use the wild as an enemy, creating story hooks uh, or providing story hooks for this is how to use the wild as an enemy in your game. When it does that and it does it well, it uh, makes me want to pull these elements out and run it in a game, which is exactly what you should get from a storyteller resource book like this. And make no mistake about it. This is a storyteller resource book. Absolutely. There's nothing in here that a player, no. No, I would never hand this to a player because there's nothing that they would get out of this. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is meant for helping storytellers elucidate the, their ideas of how to use the wild. And mostly it's meant to spark cattle, your creativity in so doing because the wild is infinite possibility. You can't possibly pin it down even in a hundred plus pages. In fact, if you did, it wouldn't be the real wild. It's one of those things where you can spend lots of word count on it and less word count on it. And either way, you're probably doing disservice one way or the other. Um, personally, I would have preferred if this book were like a 60 page book. This introduction, a couple of the chapters we're going to get into that are more technical. And then I think I would have been like, yeah, this is the, exactly the storyteller resource I want. At 119, 118 pages, too much for me. But so I, I would push back on that a little bit because there's a lot of things in that word count that actually work out really well. And the, some of it is just, I don't think that there's any fluff in here is my major point, aside from the deliberate fluff. I, uh, I, I have a thought at the, towards the very end, the book kind of goes off the rails uh, which maybe is appropriate because we're talking about wild and the wild realms, but it is very like, oh, this is where we are. And I, I think we'll, 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 we'll get there. Yeah. I just think they repeat the phrase, the wild is not Gaia. Yeah. A lot. And when you're trying to keep to a word count, like reinforcing that is both good and probably potentially a waste of words. It's one of those things that I'm like, hmm. That said, glossary in this introduction is really, really helpful for understanding some of the key things that are going to come up that I think we're all going to talk about. Abscess, Gorgon, Threshold, and Wildling. These terms are the core of the book. Yes. Understanding what those things are is what you need to do if you're going to run a thing from this is understanding them. So we're going to talk about them as we kind of go through, but um, those things are key. Oh yeah. I mean, if you remember back to when we did our dark age storyteller hooks, I was unintentionally recreating some of these terms 
and I and using a creature that they've actually not named back in here. Yeah, but I'll get to that when we get to it. Yeah, I think that some some attention should be they really did a good job with the section of what the wild is, what the wild does. Given starting to give you things, I think the personification sidebar is very important because we attribute too much intelligence and awareness to these cosmic forces. They're not, they're not so, especially the wild. I don't think the wild ever attained sentience. The weaver you could argue had, the worm probably, but the wild don't think it ever would have attained sentience. It's not true self-awareness. I'd like Because to, that would be inimical to its nature. I'd like to offer a bit of uh, shine towards one of the references they use in this section. Uh, one of my favorite old-timey movies, The Day of the Triffids, I think really punctuates the horror of, well, again, we're leaning into the weird, like, is the wild nature or whatever. doesn't matter. For the purpose of just crazy opponent appearing Day of the Triffid, wonderful example. Long story short, plant monsters mm-hmm. killing people. 1962, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, horrific. <laughs> I just love the fact that they said swamp thing. Save your breath, we know. <laughs> the West Craven swamp thing. What I like too about this intro is the mood where they talk about hope and fury and horror, and they're like, yes. The wild is a perfect like enemy or adversary or just thing to play in a horror sandbox. And after reading this book, if you don't recognize why it's a great horror resource, the suggested reading, the, the suggested uh, books um, are another good, like the type of thing you should be paying attention to. Day of the Triffids, great example of like, the wild is probably going to break through in natural places, potentially interesting thought. If it does, then it is going to mutate and make those things horrific and possibly aggressive and dangerous. Swamp thing is a good reference. just not the movie. Go read the actual comics. If you want good swamp thing, um, you know, wild connection. So if I might, um, throw an analog here for, for the kids. Um, the Last of Us is entirely uh, a wild as the enemy story. Yep. Good call. That, that tracks. That absolutely tracks. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I can, I can think of quite a few more contemporary pieces to add to this, but the, I think that the general references they give here are quite good. But yes, unchecked creation leads to horrific ideas. That is the sense of unchecked growth is also known as cancer. They yep. make that analogy several times throughout yes, they do. the year. Yep. Um, so chapter one is cosmology. And what I meant when I talked about the repetition part is a lot in here in particular, where they are trying to give you a sense of this is the cosmology of the wild focused on the wild. We understand that this triad exists. Maybe Gaia came first. Maybe the triad came first. I like that. They're still kind of allowing for that uh, non-answer to be a present 
in trying to figure out what the wild is and how it works. It goes back and forth about the gauntlet quite frequently. And this book came out in 2001. Exalted had come out or was coming out right at this time. There is a very clear sense from my perspective that this book was written with the intent of creating bridges with between the world of darkness and exalted that was hinted that that was going to be the case. They used lots of things, particularly in first edition exalted crossover. This book really feels like they're trying to show you why the wild is one of the big enemies in exalted. Oh yeah. And, and it could still be in the modern day. Oh yeah. That was, I got that loud and clear because exalted uh, aside from werewolf, Exalted is absolutely my jam. And the wild as chaotic enemy, oh yeah, that comes across loud and clear, especially when in creation where the world is flat and off the edges of the map, there are literally dragons and behemoths and fair folk because you don't dare use their real name because you'll attract their attention. And all sorts of things that want nothing more than to make you not exist. So... Yeah, the wild and chaotic as the enemy comes through that way in Exalted loud and clear, but less so in this part where the weaver is hemmed in and pinned in the wild. And I think the part about the gauntlet and the sundering is very important here because that's when the wild start to be like, oh, what? what? They, they got the sense of, wait a minute, this is a bad thing. I'm being cut off from the world. This is not okay. And this is why the wilds, if you ask me, if the wild has a goal, it's to tear down the gauntlet. And I like the idea that they hinted at here of, hey, what if you're completely wrong about the apocalypse? It's neither weaver nor worm. But the apocalypse is what happens when the wild takes the gauntlet and shreds it and remakes everything. I don't think that's really what's going to, what they intended. But it's a fascinating possibility that no guru would ever be prepared for. I am not as well read up on Exalted, but I did get, from what I do know of Exalted, enormous Exalted vibes. The discussion here about the Golden Age, I immediately go, okay, this is that Hyperborean you know, the world is shaped differently, whether, again, I don't know all the aspects of Exalted, but I do understand that it gets into the more the fantastical, yep. what myths tell of, and then where all these different modern characters were back in those days. And I really, I actually really enjoyed the perspective of, and let's see, his name is, I guess, Dr. Sandeep. And it's all about his heretical research on his archaeological and scientific research into the actual timeline of when this golden age occurred. And he, he puts it into a timeline of up to 10 million years prior, which is effectively all of prior time we would have in our human years of life on earth, 560 million, not even including the billions of times since the big bang. He can turns all that into almost like this, funnel and sieve examination of time going back to a period where it starts and then around five million years ago that's the golden age and i love it 
I love the unreliable timeline because it doesn't matter if it was 5 million. It doesn't matter if it was 80,000. It doesn't matter if it was two. It doesn't matter. It's like a matter of perspective and how you play out that perspective. And I really, really enjoy that. I like how, despite how you don't have concrete roads of 5 million, 10 million, 60 million, whatever, they still get into Pangea. They still get into uh, the, the separating, uh, the, the severing of with the gauntlet coming up and the reaction of that creating tectonic plates and the world as we know it now. I really enjoy this almost this flip from the fantastical anything can happen to this is hard reality and we need to fill in the void of magic with hard rules, which is very on brand for the weaver. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it gives a, a back and forth between Wild and Weaver. Something I'll just add real quick. The real enemy or the real conflict is Wild Weaver in this book. Worm is almost like the Wild's... I was thinking of the word mate. I don't think the word mate is right. It's almost like the Wild's yin to its yang, mm-hmm. where one is absent, the other fills in the gap. Yep. Meanwhile, the Weaver is the one where it's like, okay, this is the real... Uh, uh, Ted on Ted. This is, you know, this is the real uh, where the real uh, conflict is. Absolutely, I think you got that. Got that on one. Is you're right. The worm does feel like it's very much on the sidelines of the wild weaver conflict, mm-hmm. because the weaver is trying to shut out the wild, which is ironic because the weaver doesn't realize that if it's successful, and it will have no more raw material to work with. The wild is what makes the raw material that it works with. So the weaver should be letting the wild do its thing so that they continue to have more to order and pattern unless you want to live in your stasis cube indefinitely, oh, grandmother spider. So the rest of chapter one, which I'm going to sum up and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm trying not to steal anyone's thunder. Most of this chapter is fiction and then non-fiction text. Though it sometimes bleeds into each other and it gets a little confusing some of these little vignette stories are really, really good for explaining the locations of the wild in the Umbra, for example, or different wild spirits that it's talking about. Some of them are better than others. And then you have Daddy's Little Girl. Yeah, I was just going to. <laughs> there's one in here that's particularly just, I, I, again, like the opening story, I don't understand what point they were trying to make. And it just kind of is on the edge of offensive and harmful. And it's not the worst White Wolf has ever done. But it's like, just be careful. Some of this fiction's a little gross. You also have to remember that the fiction is from the perspective of its limited narrators. True. And given who the speaking in Daddy's Little Girl I would consider that a very unreliable narrator. Yeah, I agreed. True. And it's still a little it's still a little gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. That was the, the, I was wondering if that was meant to if that when I'm reading that was it meant to shock my sensibilities? I think or is that I'm just or it, I'm just too millennial. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be a bit like, oh, I think that's intentional, but I, I don't love it, <laughs> even if even with the author's intent there and kind of being like, I'm, I'm saying this from the character's voice as being something that you are supposed to think is kind of gross and horrible. 
there is one particular thing in this chapter that I want to call out that it gets more word count in the By Night Studios uh, werewolf LARP book. That is the Broken Lands. Mm, yes. These are places in the Umbra that are wild controlled, wild aspected. They are uh, bleeding into the physical realm as well. There are other um, examples of these. We talked about abscesses and thresholds before. Um, we're going to talk about those a little bit more here, but like this concept of this thing is one of the things that you should take away from this book that the wild is now very actively corrupting things perhaps it always has but it seems like it's a new thing they keep saying this is a new thing and it leads credence to jim's co like comment that the wild could cause the apocalypse very easily by destroying everything in its you know desire to reform it all and maybe that's what happens between every wonder work the wild just finally goes you know what i'm done Boop. and everything gets reformed into a completely new thing i, I am a very anticlimactic apocalypse but it certainly could happen right i i am overjoyed to have found the broken lands here maybe this is even the source of it yep because i'm mostly familiar uh, uh, with it from BNS. I was surprised that they didn't have the portions that are provided in BNS where Garu go out and heal the broken lands, or they sort of manufacture a sort of a pseudo broken lands, but they call it a periphery. That's more or less the, the, the supernatural and material real estate in and around a bond and a cairn, which is almost like, yeah, the gauntlet is low, but everything's imbalanced. And it's kind of like we have a lock mechanism so the bad stuff can't get in and i'm like oh that's really cool they are using similar techniques but they're doing it in a way that's workable and i like that here not so much the stuff that will come in a little bit with abscesses sort of taps into that but in a very antagonistic way yeah yeah and i think when they wrote the BNS book, someone was very familiar with this particular book and a few other things about the wild. And they were like, how can we make this more playable? Yes. And they did a decent job of that in the BNS book. Um, I, I think in general, I recommend that for finding mechanical ways of making some of these things playable. Um, if you want to play with the wild in modern nights and in other places like i would use broken lands in the dark ages gladly yep. makes total sense to me have ancient rome coexist alongside your uh modern modern knights in armor and such and i would absolutely do that but if you want an idea of how to play with these mechanics look into the material on the wild in um exalted because the border marches in particular remind me of these kind of broken lands yeah and, this, uh, and if you want to play with this stuff, reading up in the Fairfolk, the, the Fairfolk supplements for Exalted can give you a minefield of ideas that your players will not see coming, especially if they've read every single book in the werewolf canon and they think they know everything. Yep. Pull Which, something out of the, of the, of the wild. And I would specifically recommend Graceful Wicked Masks, which is the second edition yes. um, Fair Folk slash Wild supplement for Exalted. 
if you get bothered by some of the bad white wolf stuff, the first fair folk book will make your head spin. So <laughs> yeah, I it, would, it, it, I, it took me several readings of that book to make it for it to make sense to me. Yeah. Even then I'm still quasi questionable about some of it, but yeah, those are, those are all good suggestions for how to use the wild in the sense of making reality strange. Which is what the wild does. Yep. So chapter two flips the script completely and uh, starts off with how each of these particular group of Garu tribes view the wild. They start off with the Black Furies, which makes sense because the Black Furies see themselves as protectors of the wild. I really like that beginning story. I want to know what power this black fury elder used on that black spiral i really want to know what that was i uh i have a very different take on that story <laughs> interesting i don't like the representation of the black fury in that story i think it's sort of echoing the weird like pantomime of we have lady powers you know motherhood motherhood lady powers and I, i'm looking at the interaction with I, I didn't realize until later, oh, he's a black spiral dancer. At first, I thought he's just angry Garu, but okay. So that's what's going on here. But still, mm-hmm. it's it just becomes a, you're a man and your logical mind cannot comprehend the magnificence of the chaotic wild. You're not, have you ever felt birth pains? And I'm like, is this a lecture to a male reader? Like, what the hell is going on here? And then it's just at the end, the, the whatever that power is that you're mentioning, Jim, it's almost like it just needed to be there to put the the, the story to a, to bed. It it I felt it was very much rehashing a stereotype of wise lady who knows more than you, and I don't know. I I, I don't want to call it like offensive for offensive sake, but I thought it was just not. Uh, it, it, I just it's think it's it's more of that. Black Furies are a trope of feminism. It, it definitely leans into uh, the stereotypes of the Black Furies in some ways. But I really like this story for it feeling a bit like a fairy tale. It reads a lot to me like something that Grimm would have collected or one of Aesop's fables or something like that, except... Um, told in a slightly more modern way dove i'm hearing your con- like your issues with it um besides the actual mechanical elements of how the heck this story would make any sort of sense i think it's a really interesting one to what if a black spiral dancer comes calling and thinks they're going to destroy you and then can't true I'm interested in that. I'm interested in what that, how that story would continue if I were to have a pack interact with it in some way, shape, or form. To to, to be clear, I I don't think I've given a fair enough shade to the the, the dancer because you're getting his perspective and his. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I hate him. I hate everything yep. he's about. I am not a fan of black spiral dancers, and so seeing an edge lord's perspective is like, ugh, it's everything right. you love and hate about the that guy so i could see with a different cast of characters approaching her this could be really well done but as it was with with this pantomime of wise lady and 
an edgelord, shitlord, whatever we want to determine that to be. I was like, ugh, ugh. I think we have different perspectives. I think that is interesting. I don't think either is wrong in this case, because I think it is a good story if it makes different people take different things from it. True. Um, Absolutely. It um, goes then um, into a few other of the tribes. Uh, it has a really good vignette of what I think is actually a really terrible way a wolf would think about things. But if you're trying to understand the Red Talons as written, this story, The Voice of the Wolf, gives you how the Red Talons are written in a very succinct way, in a very interesting way. Um, this it actually whole... helped me understand the Red Talons. Was yeah. In and of itself, a very valuable contribution. Yep. This whole section of this chapter, though, really it drives home that the Garu think the wild and Gaia are the same, even though it's, it is also the text is trying to show you how they're not, but it gets confusing at times where it's like, is, is it, are they the same? Are the, or is this just saying the Garu think they're the same? The black spiral dancer section here is super key. This is super key. You need to pay attention to this because this is a great, plot line yes where absolutely they start talking about what the abscesses are what wild abscesses are and how they are specifically corrupting black spiral dancer hives this is a beautiful story where i would be like you know what would be really interesting is the black spiral shows up with a howl of introduction on the bond of a cairn waits shows respect and then says we need your help Yes. Oh my yes. yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Because that would just mess with the player character's head so much. Yeah. I love that the wild is specifically growing its cancer its boils in the heart of Black Spiral Dancer Karen. I love anything that puts a hurt on Black Spiral highs. Yes. And with the wild specifically pinpointing them as hey. This is a spot, and it really makes sense from the wild's perspective. This is a spot where the gauntlet is thin, and I have an easier time busting through. I'm going to use this. Oh, there happen to be worm things here. Uh, they're in the way. Run them over. I have this vision in my head of wild worm playing a balancing act of osmosis. Mm -hmm. And with the way the weaver has sort of set the board all of our attention has been so focused on the worm where it's now created that imbalance. And this book is wonderful at showing how easy it is for the wild to just sort of hop, skip. And like Jim said, plow its way into those wormy areas. I, I adore this aspect. I love how the, uh, how the, the black spirals are more or less brought to their knees. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's it's an absolutely amazing. I will say this. Um, there, I'm a little bit more familiar with Changeling, uh, obviously, than I am with Exalted, and I'm surprised there isn't more links directly to that. I am also, and I think it's it's interesting because I, I think they avoid the Changeling wild connection in the Modern World of Darkness books even though it's clearly there 
in the like subtext and in sometimes in the text. So yeah. it's well, odd they that they don't have them here. Well, they haven't written Dark Ages Fae yet by this point. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't need to because they'd written Exalted and clearly they said, you know, the Fae are, the Fair Folk are wild in Changeling. The, the, there is the sense that they are probably connected to the wild. They've said so in other werewolf books. Like, yeah. What is the, I didn't see any changelings mentioned anywhere in this. Yeah, and I would yeah, expect there, there's like it mentions oh changelings as a book and then never includes them. I have this vision in my head, and maybe I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but I have this vision in my head of a black spiral hive getting an abscess. Meanwhile, like a few weeks before, oh this head of the black spirals of this hive had a deal with a, an unseelie or a shadow court member. And suddenly what the hell is happening to my hive? Mm -hmm. And then the shadow court shows up and says ours. Now it would be beautiful. That yeah. would be such a beautiful, like this is now our freehold and you can get out. Yes. And then they use, you know, one form or another of changeling powers to kick out the black spiral dancers. And yeah. again, Having a, a like a pack of black spiral dancers come to the local Garu Sept and be like, "Can you please help us? What can we do to appease you?" So that you... <laughs> I, I, I love that. I, I love that. I just think that players would be so on their heels by that yep. because it's like we should just kill them right there, right now. But that would be wrong to do that right there, right now. But we should just kill them. And screw the worm, but what? Uh, and then the watching their heads explode with yep. confusion yep. would be worth it. This uh, this chapter gives what I think is the best fiction in here. It's uh, a Ratkin and an Ananasi in India having a conversation in a park about a a forested area that is being um, deforested and what they're going to do about it. This is such a great way of saying, this is how you could get Farah involved with yes. each other. It, it shows that there is cross Farah communication and interaction in a way that you don't get often in books. And it's so well done. Like it's really good fiction. I'm really happy with this. Like I, I yeah. want a whole book based on this story, actually like, this would be a great thing for someone to take out and make a storyteller's vault like chronicle book for. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. still, I'm still waiting for, for rage across India. Right. This, this book got me thinking like, were they going to write that? Like that would have been incredible. Um, also it put a really interesting light on the Anasi. Yeah. Oh, the wild centric Anasi. I'm like, this is really well done. Yep. Cause people forget that the Nanase have three breeds. Yeah. One dedicated to each part of the triad. They focus a little much on the on the worm and the weaver aspect ones, but the wild aspect ones exist too. And they would definitely be interesting antagonists, to say the least, or interesting allies. Because yes. you would need because what if the guru are approached by one or the other of these parties saying, we need your help executing this particular plan. I can just imagine myself sitting in an Indian cairn of blood red crest and being approached by either one of these parties and like, okay, protect the wild is usually a good thing. And the two of you are in on this together. 
I think I'm going to agree just because I want to see where this goes. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's just, yeah, I do agree. This is one of the strongest pieces of fiction here. An unlikely alliance between two Pharaoh that you wouldn't think to deal with each other at all. Right. They do. And immediately after that, you get uh, what feels like it comes out of nowhere. This whole section on thresholds, which again, if you are reading this book, you must go to page 52 and read this section on thresholds because a threshold is uh, effectively a wild aspected place that becomes a character similar to a fomori in a lot of ways, particularly with the way the rules for this are written is uh, you get a list of powers to build your own threshold this is super strong. Like this is a great section. Oh yes, I didn't realize it when we were right when we were doing the Dark Age story hooks. But what I was talking about was literally a guru summoned a wild spirit, and that wild spirit created a threshold. Yep. And what the guru are fighting against is a very aggressive threshold in that situation that has every desire to be like the cancerous growth on the on the earth. And do you? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with a threshold or an abscess boiling out of your own camp? How do you deal with that? And what do you deal? How do you deal with these wild spaces? Do you avoid them? Do you protect them? Do you have to pair them back because they're now threatening things that they shouldn't be? Ooh, the possibilities. Ooh, the possibilities. From a from a, a specific mechanical standpoint, if you're just here for the tactical battles. These are monsters. If you look yes. at some of the powers they have access to and what they can summon, they can summon, if you're not familiar with it, they can summon vortices. Vortices, at least as far as the W20 books are concerned, are enormous wild maelstroms from the Deep Umbra that do unsoakable ag damage. And these things can summon them like the best friends yep and these things themselves are jam-packed with all kinds of wild powers wild w-i-l-d that they can use on their own they have rage wild rage not luna rage wild rage it goes out of its way to say they're not vulnerable to silver amongst a whole array of powers they are awesome absolutely awesome yep and then they give you examples, really cool examples of what these thresholds could be using myths from America in particular. Things like <laughs> the, the Fountain, Fountain of Youth, the Fountain mm-hmm. of Youth, the, uh, the burial grounds, the sour burial grounds is uh, ripped right out of Pet Cemetery. And is that a trope? Yes, but it is so well written here that I might use it at some point. Um, And the Symphony of Frogs is just cool. Like, (laughs) I like all of these. I really do. Um, And then it gets into the difference of what an abscess is, specifically is a cairn, as we mentioned, that is being absorbed, eaten, twisted by the wild. 
specifically generally it goes after black spiral dancer cairns hives first but like any cairn could incidentally because of a thin gauntlet have the wild reach in and be like you know what this is mine now and it would be super cool to have that pack of black spiral dancers show up the garu rebuff them and then their cairns start getting messed up and the black spiral dancers coming by again and saying if you help us we will help you yes yes yep love that love that want to see it happen don't want to see it happen to one of my characters but want to see it happen <laughs> yeah because it's because that's hilarious yes the wild infects your cairn the wild is now a presence in your cairn how do you deal with that do you wall it off do you try to coexist with it do you try to cut it out I love that the right of obsession over here is a level one right. My, it's a powerful level one right. And if you screw it up, your Karen is dust. Yep. Or rather, wild. Yep. So, this I love it. And this chapter ends with, again, something I feel, why was oh. this not in another book? Oh, my because God. It goes into the Storm Eater in ways that you don't even get in the wild west when i would have loved to have had these two pages on the storm eater it gives you some answers about the storm eater that as a storyteller if i'm going to use it in the wild west i need these answers this is so good particularly with the understanding of what abscesses are and thresholds are and again i think the storm eater is not a weaver worm spirit even though they they're like yeah it is i think it is a wild spirit that is corrupted by all three elements of the triad and it's out of control and probably like in one way or another an aspect of all three of them oh yeah i what quarter fun fun things would you do with that i i, I definitely lean into that purview of it i will say this with when it comes to storm eater it sort of opens up its creation it doesn't mm -hmm. define it but it gives mm -hmm. you some really cool stuff to work with but i think the important jewel that you get out of it and i can't recall if this is mentioned in other books but it gives you a way to use it functionally in a modern setting uh not like a oh this is an end of times thing not that it can't be you can lead up to it but it gives you a way to sort of make mid-tier fights and whatnot with its slivers yeah i like that a lot and it also gives you a reason to oh you're in party your party encounters a threshold oh it's a horrible thing it's dangerous and wait what's that it's gonna absorb the energy of the threshold and become a bigger threat uh oh what do we do wonderful wonderful these yep. are my probably favorite two pages in the entire book because i i finally yeah. understand what the heck the Storm Eater was. I, I never read anything of the Wild West because I'm like, one, it's not my kind of thing. Two, it came and went before I was ever a werewolf thing. And I never bothered with it. But reading this, it's like, wow, that's an apocalyptic level threat. And that is a chronicle worth having. Fighting this thing, yes. Keeping the fact that they never really got rid of it, that it's not gone. It's like every other vein tender vein trapped in the earth. It's just tied up. It's bound. It's sleeping, but not 
sleeping peacefully. Yep. A fit of full sleep for the storm eater could send a vortex, could send loose any one of its slivers or incursions, just like Dove said. It could burst one of the abscesses that's forming in your cairn, could be a tendril of the storm eater trying to burst its way back into creation. Yep. And what are you going to do about it? Took 13 of the best guru of its era to tie it back down. Yep. What do yep. you got? Right. <laughs> so getting into uh, that was only chapter two. I'm going to just do a quick overview of chapter three, which is an excellent chapter. I am not diminishing it by doing this quick overview. I'm going to let both of you pull out one thing from this chapter. If you can think of one <laughs> to be like, hey, this is cool. Chapter three is all kinds of creatures of the wild gorgons and otherwise that you can use it has a mix of fiction and uh this interaction between two black furies and a very old macaulay which is very well done and then it gives you specific rules on like building a gorgon they emphasize regularly that gorgons cannot be made out of humans i throw that out i don't think that's a no. good idea no uh, um i understand Agreed. why they do it but i just it that is a storyteller fiat thing immediately. I'm like, oh, humans, of course, can be Gorgons because um, that would be fun to play with. But my favorite is the cow because the cow is an indestructible cow that just appears. And I would love to put something like that in a game where characters are like, okay, why is this cow in the middle of our cairn? It just is. And raging against it isn't going to do anything oh and it's causing an abscess at the same time so now you have to take action against this cow how do you do so against something that you cannot kill and will pop into and out of the umbra at will and just get away from you now that said dove what is your uh, impossible task but what is your one thing out of this chapter that you pull out my favorite <clears throat> my favorite example of the gorgons here are Rorg's hungry children. Yes. I love them. And wow. I've actually, I've used them in a scene. Uh, they are fantastic because you can have them show up for whatever reason. My excuse was in the Umbra. I had, um, what is it? A mammatus traveling with a wild storm in its wake and the, the, the debris of its dynamic energy cause these things to wake up. And so now they're running amok in a city, no less, just doing whatever they do. And I've had Garu and other Pharah having to fight these things that are almost comparable in strength, that have no, they have no discernment of what the hell they're doing here, why they're here, what's going on. All they know is that they were paying attention to the Umbra, a big storm went by, and now these things are here. I love the the sort of the callback to uh, Stephen King's Langoliers that they evoke. They, yep. for reference, they are big rock boulder things with crystalline teeth in their mouths. They fly around. Um, they are hardy as hell. They have like a an eight soak, and they are they're quite potent. And plus, they can work in groups. I'd also like to make a special mention, just as a sort of I'm shaking my wing at this. Mothman, <laughs> yes, Mothman for the is long, in here. 
For the longest time, I didn't think that World of Darkness had a representation, and I claimed Mothman for all the Koraks out there as a, this is a story about a Korax that was screwing around with people, and then I find that this book goes and makes a Mothman? Well, I'm going to keep my version, too. We can have two of them. I'm very upset. I'm a very upset uh, person. <laughs> unreliable narrator to the rescue. That's right. <laughs> Um, I want to shout out specifically the fiction interstitial throughout this entire thing as like, this is some of the best use of interstitial fiction I've ever seen to frame something in a white wolf book. And I love it. I love this whole conversation running. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the fact that they're dealing with a Mokale who has a form of an actual dragon. I love that they're grabbing golden apples from the tree of Hesperides and all of those lovely mythological references were just delightful. I thoroughly enjoyed this section. And this is the wild's bestiary. Have fun with it. Yes. Um, I, I saw so many cool things in here that I'm definitely going to use. Crossbreeds, goblins, sands of time, unravelers, all fun stuff like that. But my favorite has to be the nameless. Because that's what I think of when I think of a wild spirit. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have a form. It can break reality with a touch. And, it, and it, oh, you're going to try and kill me? I'm going to take you with me by snatching your name and turning you into an atom bomb. That sounds to me like the probably unsatisfying conclusion to our wilds, to the wild seed I had in the Dark Ages, because you finally confront the wild spirit. You beat it within an inch of its life, and it's like, you, player character, you no longer have a name, and you blow up like an atom bomb, and you all die. Unsatisfying conclusion, yes, but you guys succeeded in containing the wild. Good, good job. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a very fun ending uh, to a one shot where you're like, "Oh, come on!" Like, but it it would be bad for an ongoing chronicle. But if it's a limited one, wouldn't be terrible. Just off the top of my head, I have a, a vision, and I'm sure this is already canonized somewhere. But a pre Kunduska event, Tunduska. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. Yep. Right. Uh, who's to say the Kanduska event wasn't the result of a confrontation between a worm spirit or a weaver spirit and a and a nameless and an unnamed? Yeah. And a nameless. Could it have really been. would make total sense. It um, isn't in Rage Across Russia, but that doesn't mean it couldn't have been. Right. Um, so, I also like the children, the muses. I want to so, visit from them. I want to visit from them on purpose because it's like that's. The wild, what is it going to create? What am I going to create as a result of having an encounter with the muses? And what kind of interesting ideas will that spark for Future Chronicle? So, um, yes, but like Josh, I also throw off the rule no human gorgons. Nonsense. Right. I would imagine that it would reduce any humans it possesses to animal intelligence that act on more instinct, but nonsense. Turning the weaver monkeys into its playthings would be totally in character for the wild. Yeah. So that's chapter three, which is an excellent chapter. We're, we went through it quickly, but I really encourage storytellers to read it in depth. And when you're like, hey, what monster of the week am I going to use? Diving into this book and flipping through it and finding a random one, totally valid and interesting. Chapter four is basically how to storytell with the wild. This is a really good chapter where it provides really good story hooks, really good explanations for 
what if the wild is nurturing or savage or subversive? If it's your ally, if it's your enemy, if it's just there, how do you use the wild in all of these different ways? This is really, really useful for a storyteller to have all of that framing, I think. It if you also, only read one chapter in this book, read this one. I don't know about that. I don't think this chapter would actually make a whole lot of sense without the others. But if you just want, if you're a storyteller and you just want good storytelling advice, this is actually some of the better like storytelling mm -hmm. advice I've seen in Werewolf. Like this is really good. It gives you some info on other vampires and mages and things like that with the wild. I think one of the things here is the um if the wild can't make gorgons out of vampires what can it make gorgons out of because it should it should be able to make wild monstrous leech like creatures there's so much fun uh body horror i can have here i i got the impression i think it was in the prior chapter that it had turned a dead human into a gorgon Mm -hmm. But now here it's it's more specifically saying it can't turn like undead things into gorgons. I I agree with you. This is an area where storyteller fiat, especially if a good idea for it, wins out. I I sometimes struggle with that because it's like this is such a hard rule. No humans as, as gorgons. Okay, so what? Maybe the deceased, maybe a graveyard because they're not really humans anymore. Mm -hmm. Sure, uh, a vampire doesn't count, but then it gives an example of a vampire that's been transformed by the wild so wait <laughs> right is it did a gorgon or a spirit infect the vampire and then do a whole thing where it has roots and vines coming out of it is it a gorgon is it just a thing that's being you that's like what these are wonderful ideas why put a why put a cap on yeah i really think that is a classic case of them saying don't do this but then do this yeah yep. because really that's that's like come on exactly come on it's just too too good to ignore. This little chapter also has some of my favorite art in the book, particularly ninety four and ninety five. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's a that's a that's a cool pack of werewolves. I want to know what their story is. Yeah. Um, then there's this, I really appreciated the sections on alternate time settings where yes, the wild so stand there. That was a thing that I was going to pull out about this. This should have been in the storyteller's guide. There's really awesome information on telling yeah. stories in different time settings that I'm like, I don't have anything about the Roman Empire up until now. Like, why didn't I have this prior to this? Because this is really neat. Like, yeah, thanks. Um, so I, um, I recommend the book just for that. Um, just to have those little like tidbits and it spends 10 pages on alternate timelines and going through several different ones and yeah. then uh, alternate realities and different things like that. Like, holy cow, this is all like very useful storytelling stuff. Uh, the sidebar on doing your homework, mm -hmm. essential reading if you're a historical storyteller because it is entirely possible to get lost in the research yep. and present way too much information. Yep. I committed that sin more than once and I will do it again because I'm a nerd for this stuff. But I, uh, but I will say it is possible to do 
so much research you get lost in it and you can and you cannot provide a flavor behind the wall of text that you're going to read to your players yep. so good warning there that said oh i love this you can use where the dark ages rules to run something in imperial rome in classical greece in pretty much any time prior to the modern era it gives you the rules for for running characters with the medieval skill sets that would be perfectly applicable to the classical era perfectly applicable to the time before i mean if you want to go even deeper we have the we now have the storytellers vaults creation of werewolf the savage age yep, which yep. i'm jealous of those guys because they're doing what we want to do with werewolf the dark ages and we've been added longer but come on we need to get moving on that just just um, to add in savage age is incredible it, it, it really is. Go, go get it it's yeah, it's it really amazing is. support those guys yeah we're not i'm not in any way disparaging them i'm just jealous that they of what they've been able to accomplish For it's sure. incredible <laughs> so chapter four ends with a discussion on madness and um garu <laughs> and i'm just going to say you can skip this entire section don't read it i i wanted to tap that just i'll be as gentle as i can they should not have approached this in classical these are this is a form of madness i would have if i had the magic wand i would have gone in hard in that what your character is experiencing which we in the real world might call schizophrenia no you're just so infected with wild that you are now more or less having some sort of a communication with the dynamism in all things i would go literally into it it's not really madness it's the filters are gone but they didn't instead you have well we'll, we'll you can read it if you want to it's it's yep. it's not in best taste I'll it, say the way the way that white wolf has handled actual psychological conditions has never been with the best of taste no especially it, as people who have these conditions yeah sitting and, around this microphone I, uh, I can just say, don't just don't read this section. It, it, you're probably better for it if you want to play with concepts of of madness and shifting um, realities. Dove had a, a good suggestion for doing that. You can do that without reading this section. Yeah. Um, so chapter five is about uh, widgets, its fetishes and ultimately rights. And I think you, uh, Dove, have something to say about the final right in this book. Yeah. Um, uh, for a wild book where fortunately only like two areas, maybe three areas of the book kind of got all conflated with the whole, the wild is creation. Creation is a womb, woman, 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 womb, womb. Um, and now the final right is all about we're going to have an orgy where we're going to raise the fertility rate, but we don't want to have any. Uh, I'll use the, the the word crinos breed there because they might taint the right because they're sterile. And I'm looking at this going, we have enough orgy stuff. You don't need a right to have an orgy. You can just have an orgy. Um, I had right. a suggestion. I wrote this up in one of the for, uh, in the discord. My recommendation was let's not do an orgy right Let's do a right where you find a Krinos born and you invest him with so much wild energy that their deformities start to blossom and go out of control and butt out. And from their body come forth these almost like these demi Garu Gorgon creatures that maybe they'll live for like a week or two. Let's say this is some one of those 
crazy rights where you're trying to build a small crazy army for some enormous battle or whatever and just make it really gross lean into john carpenter's the thing yep. lean into some wacky cronenberg stuff they could have done that but no we got an orgy look, look we, we we've seen this all before like that's it let's be honest it's passe some people are, are for it some people think it's gross i'm like eh, this is we're more than this let's get gross here let's do some fun stuff I'm with Dove. There should be a <laughs> lot more wild rights in here than just those two, and one of them being sadly predictable. Yeah. Let's, yeah. No, let's let's do some more crazy stuff. If you're yeah. invoking wild spirits, you know you're taking your uh, proverbial life in your hands, and you're really hoping that the result is better than the the uh, intention than the risk. But really, when you invoke the wild, you should be prepared for unpredictable results and that's why maybe there shouldn't be quite so many wild rights because rights are predictable and maybe wild is not predictable it's definitely an interesting way to end the book and there's a nice storyteller's note going you know uh which i actually appreciate you know if your players aren't cool with an orgy maybe fade to black and thank you white wolf for at least finally recognizing that maybe you should add that note so I give you credit uh, for doing so. I want to say Book of the Wild. I came into it. I almost wanted to give this a don't read this rating while I was reading it. But then I kept finding things that I went, oh, this is cool. This is neat. I'll use this. This is good. Oh, I don't have this anywhere else. Thank you for giving me this. So if you were to give this a rating of 10 wild things can't be counted. So if you were to give this a rating. We're opposing Weaver on the wild and we know that's a risk. <laughs> um, Dove, I will give it to you first. What, uh, how many, I'm trying to think of something completely ridiculous. How Feather, many feathers on a wing? Feathers in a hat would you give this I, I would give this book eight feathers out of ten in a hat uh i found this book to be a wonderful and very workable way to utilize the wild that i think often gets underestimated i would definitely encourage pair this with the umbra books mm -hmm. if you want to cross over into cross flat becoming acquainted with playing even though this book really doesn't take advantage of it, there's so much possibilities you can do. I strongly encourage it. And, and last thing I'll say is it's a real shame they don't go into the Zeme in this book. That yeah. would been a, This book would have been perfect to get into them. Eh. A callback to uh, Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand would have been amazing in this book. Even though they've gone, like at this point, like 15, uh, seven years, between books, it would have been great for them to just be like, you know what? Here's a twinkle of an idea. If you are one of those people that still has this book, um, that would have been fun. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I actually am not going to explain that reference. Jim, what? Uh, how many feathers in a hat would you give this book? I'd say seven sounds a good number. It's a very useful piece if you're a storyteller who needs to understand 
a little bit, or at least get inspired, more people really understand, get inspired. Yeah. Because when you're using the while, you're not going to use it the same way twice. So you shouldn't ever use it the same way twice. So you want inspiration. And this book will give you inspiration. I found things in here that I didn't know I was creating, that I didn't know I was recreating when I was trying to think on the wild, and that's okay. And I found things that I will use in the future and things that I will look look for to experience in the future. I will think found things that can that deepen my appreciation. And I also found lots of what I really wanted to drive home, which is the wild is no one's friend. Yeah. The wild is your temporary ally at best. And I found plenty of that, which I appreciate. No member of the triad is on your side. Get over that idea real quick. Yep. That drove that home with the storyteller really well, in my opinion. I think that was a good, good use of. And I found there was very little in here except for the stuff on madness that could have been totally excised yep. and not been valued. Yep. I will give this book two ratings, two different feather and hat ratings. I will give it a zero out of 10 for a player. (laughs) I, uh, if you are a player, there is an absolutely no reason for you to ever pick this book up um, because your storyteller might find one of the fetishes interesting and drop it in a place for you. And that might be how you interact with it. Otherwise you're not going to get much out of this book. I will give this a eight out of 10 feathers in a hat for a storyteller. If you are reading this and you're like, why am I reading this? This book isn't very good. I had the same reaction until I was looking at it in aggregate. It is well-written. It is repetitive at times. It has some odd elements. It has some things that aren't perfect, but there is no book like this except this book in any of the series of books from first edition all the way to W20. This is one of the very few books that I would say every storyteller of werewolf should read this at least once and then have tabs in key places for things you want to reference later. So on that note, until we finally get an answer to the question of when will you rage? We'll talk to you again next time.